Amen. Our sermon text this morning is, please be seated. No, don't be seated. (laughs) Be unseated. Our sermon text this morning comes from Malachi chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 13 through the end of the chapter. These are the words of God. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed, for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him, For those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and one who does not serve him. These are the words of God. (laughs) Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come now to the preaching of your word, we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear what you have revealed in it. And then, Father, give us hearts to believe it by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that as we open your word, we would see and know you by it. We ask this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As we press on through the book of Malachi, you you may have noticed in the uh, previous few chapters, there is a repeated pattern that comes up time and again of this interchange between the Lord and the people, where the Lord will bring an accusation of some kind and accuse the people of particular things that they have done, particular sins that they have committed against him. And time and time again, the people respond to this demonstrating the hardness of their hearts. God says to them that you have uh, brought filthy sacrifices to me, that you have done unjustly, that you have uh, committed adultery and idolatry. And he, he brings all of these accusations against them. And over and over, the people say, well, how so? In what way? And they, they sort of talk back to God. And so as we come to, towards the end of the book of Malachi, we come to the last of these interchanges. um, where God brings an accusation and there's some sort of an impertinent response from the people. In this particular passage, there are two groups of people that are identified. There's the people, the group of people who, hearing what God has said, bring their own charges against God. So God brings a charge against them and they respond by pointing the finger back at him. That's one group of people. And then on the other hand, there are those who do, in fact, return to God. When God brings charges against them, they hear it, and their hearts are softened, and they turn to him in repentance. These are the two groups that Malachi sets before us in this passage. So let me walk through this passage briefly, verse by verse, and then we'll get into into the details. So first of all, the Lord accuses the people of speaking harsh words against him. I I particularly like the uh, King James translation of this um, instead of harsh words. The the Hebrew word there is um, the same word that's used to describe a strong man, strength of some kind. And so the King James translates it stout words, right? There are these people that are bringing stout words against God. They're Harsh words or hard words, strong words, but not in a sense that is glorifying to God, but in an accusatory sense. So they bring harsh words against God, and God, uh, so God presents this to them, accuses them of bringing these stout words against him, and they respond by simply asking, well, how do we do that? What do you mean, God? They're like that little child that always talks back right away. I I see that you did this. What do you mean I did that? Well, you did that, right? It's right in front of you. You can see it. This is the way that they are responding to the Lord. And they, they go on to say, that, and, and so God answers that question, though. How, how have we spoken harshly to you? God answers and says that they have said that obeying God is fruitless. Walking in obedience to God brings no profit. And they point around and they even see the proud and those who do wickedly blessed. They say that they tempt God or they test God and they get away with it. 
They're looking around at all the people around them that they deem to be wicked and proud. And they say, God, see those people, they don't obey you. They're proud. They're wicked. They tempt you in this. They test you in this and they get away with it. And yet, God, we're here obeying you and it profits us nothing. These are their harsh words that God says they bring against him. And then often in these interchanges, there will be, so God brings an accusation and then the people respond with some sort of impertinence and then the Lord will, lay, will line out in more detail what it is that they have done. And he will go into more detail explaining how they have walked away from him and turned from him in their disobedience. But that doesn't happen in this passage. Instead, Malachi notes uh, sort of changes the direction of the passage. He changes the attention of the passage Instead of looking at those who are um, responding to God in this impertinent, disobedient way, he turns to those who fear the Lord. He says, some feared the Lord and they rightly responded to his rebuke. The Lord declares that these, those who fear him, shall be his and that he will make them his special treasure. And he will spare them like a father does a son who serves him. He will spare them like a father spares his faithful son. And then finally, Malachi closes this section, noting that the people, uh, I think most likely here he's talking about those who had complained about the Lord's discernment. They will in time see the difference between the, between the righteous and the wicked. They're, they're accusing God, of, they, they're looking at themselves and saying, God, we are obeying you, but it's not profiting us anything. And all those wicked people out there are disobeying you and they're prospering. And Malachi ends this section by saying, in time, you will, you will actually see the difference between the wicked and the righteous. And it's because they have been blinded themselves about their own wickedness. So I'd like to spend some time uh, digging into this passage a little more, uh, in a little more depth. I'm going to take, the first, uh, take it in these two sections. So the section that talks about uh, the people who are disobedient to God, talking back to him, speaking these harsh words against him. And then we'll spend time talking about those who fear the Lord and how they rightly respond to him. So in verse 13, again, uh, the people have spoken harsh words or stout words against the Lord. The Lord has repeatedly charged the people and, and led by the priests. The priests are, in many regards, the, the object of God's, uh, the, the people specifically to whom God is speaking in Malachi. But it includes all the people. So he's repeatedly charged the people, led by the priests, of breaking God's law. If you flip through uh, Malachi or scan through it again, you'll see in chapter 1, starting in verse 6, he says that they break God's law with their polluted sacrifices and their manipulative worship. They offer foul things to the Lord, broken things to the Lord, seeking to get something out of him. And God hates this. It's not bringing glory to his name. God also accuses the Levites of not teaching the people, not leading the people in righteousness. You see this in chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. He charges them with idolatry in chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Um, and, and in that passage, he equates or uh, brings together and links idolatry with harlotry, saying basically that idolatry is spiritual adultery. That's what idolatry is. And then he goes on and accuses them also of their own uh, temporal adultery and divorce in verses 13 through 16. He accuses them also then in the passage we looked at last week of withholding tithes and offerings from him, verses 8 and 9. And we saw, we looked at how bringing the tithes and offerings to the Lord are uh, something that is due to God because he is God. Because everything that we have been given is from him. That's why his people bring tithes and offerings to him. And yet the people are withholding that from him, and so they rob God. Yet with all of these accusations brought against them, the people, again, led by the Levites, the priests, complain that their obedience, that their obedience is not resulting in the blessing that they expect from God. Do you see the irony here? Over and over, God has said, you're disobeying, you're disobeying, you're disobeying, you're disobeying, you're disobeying. And then, and then God says, and you've brought some harsh words against me. What are our harsh words? Well, you keep saying that you're obeying and not getting what you want out of it. You're, you're obeying and you're, ex you're not getting the blessings that you expect out of this. 
They're not hearing God's words. They're not hearing his rebuke. They're not taking it to heart, that, of, to heart the, the rebuke of their disobedience. So they're not getting what they expect from God, verse 14. And this is also, um, the irony is um, uh, emphasized or brought out even more because what has God just told his people in the previous verses? Look back up to verse 10. God says, bring the tithes into the storehouse. So stop robbing me and instead obey me and try me now in this. Test me in this. Walk by obedience and test me and see if I don't open the heavens to bless you. And so the people say, well, that sounds pretty good. Well, God, we're obeying you and you're not blessing us. Having disregarded all the other things that God has said that they're disobeying him in, they find their one little area that they think that they are obeying God in and expecting him to bless them. And then accusing God because of it, accusing him of being unjust. They bring a strong complaint against God because he has not rewarded their obedience. It says uh, in verse, uh, this, the last part of verse 14 that we, we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts. They've put on, I think, a, a, a show of humility. They've dressed themselves as mourners. They've uh, uh, tired themselves as those who are weeping and sorrowful because of their sin. And yet God still does not hear them. This, I think, re this reminds me of um, 2 Corinthians 7.10. I'd like you to turn there. Second Corinthians chapter 7. In this passage, Paul is writing, this is the second letter to the Corinthians, and Paul is writing to them about the first letter that he wrote to them. So he had written to them and rebuked them for some, for some things. And in this particular passage in chapter 7, he is um, writing to them, uh, discussing their response to that letter. So how did they respond to that letter? And he says to them that he, he recognizes that he made them sorry. He made them sorrowful. His words hurt them, but it turned them to repentance. They, they responded rightly to his rebuke. And so then this is what he says in verse, verses 9 and 10. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the word of the world produces death. Paul sets up here, juxtaposes these two kinds of sorrow, two different ways of mourning when a rebuke is brought to you, when somebody confronts you with your sin. There's a way of being sorrowful that is godly, that leads to repentance. There's a way of sorrow that, think of it this way, that kind of sorrow turns your eyes away from yourself. If I am rebuked for a sin that I have committed, somebody comes to me or the Spirit convicts me and, and points out to me some place that I have sinned, and it, well, we should stop here. We should define what is sin, right? Sin is disobedience to God's law. Sin is breaking God's law at any point. And so if I have done that, if I have broken God's law and then I am convicted of that or confronted by that, godly sorrow leads to repentance. It turns my eyes away from myself and instead fixes my eyes on Christ, the one in whom I'm trusting as I repent and turn back to God. This is godly sorrow, and it leads to repentance. On the other hand, you have what Paul calls um, worldly sorrow, the sorrow of the world. This is a sorrow that does not lead to repentance and salvation, but rather, Paul says, it leads to death. It's a sorrow that turns inward. It's a sorrow that feels really bad that I've done these things and stays there and doesn't actually turn to the Lord in repentance. It, it's a kind of sorrow that um, uh, sort of a, 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 um, when, a man, when a man is confronted by his sin and instead of repenting and taking responsibility for it, he turns into a hurt puppy. Okay? That kind of um, meek and mild and staying meek and mild and not in a Christ-like manner, but rather in a feel sorry for myself and I hope I get some sympathy because I'm looking so mournful about my sin. Right? That's worldly sorrow. And Paul says that leads to death. 
godly sorrow takes responsibility, is sorrowful about your sin and about the hurt that you have done to somebody, but then it leads to repentance and a change in you. It leads to a change in the way that you address or treat the person that has come and confronted you. That's godly sorrow. And Paul juxtaposes that with this worldly sorrow. So go back to Malachi then. I think the implication in this passage is, these are the, remember, these are the harsh words or the stout words, the, the accusing words that these people are bringing against God. And they're saying, God, we've, we've been mournful. Don't you see how mournful we've been? Don't you see how humble we've been? I think God, Malachi here, indicates that this is a worldly sorrow. It's not a sorrow that leads to repentance. They don't turn in fear of God. They're still looking to manipulate God by their sorrow. See, God, how sorry I am about my sin. Now would you give me what I want? They're continuing to manipulate God. They go on beyond this, though, and point out that the wicked, on the other hand, are doing quite well. Verse 15. They, they see, God, we're, not, we're, we're obeying you, whatever that means, and you're not blessing us, but we look around us and we see others that we think are proud and wicked, and they're, they're doing really well. They're well off. They're being built up. They're being blessed. God, they're tempting you, and they get away with it. And so they think that God is blind to them, blind to their obedience, and blind to the wickedness of these other people. And this just shows that they actually, in fact, are clinging to their doubt in his justice. They doubt God's justice, which we've already seen in chapter 2, verse 17. This is, again, another accusation that God brings against the people. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? God, we're looking around and seeing all these people doing wickedly and they're, they're doing fine. There's no judgment brought against them. Where is the God of justice? Right, and in that passage, we, it goes on to say that the God of justice is coming and who can stand before him? He will be like a refiner's fire. And so they're, they're continuing and having heard all of that, then we get to chapter 3. And the people are still doubting God's justice. They're not hearing his rebuke and turning in repentance. They are um, uh, embracing this worldly sorrow and continuing on in doubting his justice. They're also clinging to their continued doubt in God's love. Remember that in chapter 1, Malachi opens this prophecy with this statement from the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Right? God, Malachi begins his oracle by saying, the Lord says, I have loved you. And immediately the response is, what do you mean you love us? And that's exactly what the kind of thing that we see again in chapter 3. Malachi is saying, you have brought these harsh words against the Lord. Instead of turning in repentance to him, you're claiming to obey him, but Jesus tells us that if you love the Lord, then you'll keep his commandments. If you love the Lord with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you walk in his ways, you keep his commandments. They're claiming obedience, but, but they have no love for God because they're not turning in repentance to him. And so because of that, they doubt God's love for them, which when you're walking in your sin is a right thing to consider. When you're walking in your sin, there ought not be a sense of security in God's love, although if you are baptized in Christ, you are secure in that love, but you're not going to feel that, you're not going to experience that because you're rejecting God in that moment. There's not an assurance there. And that's what these people have. They're rejecting God, they're, they're not fearing Him, they're not turning in repentance to Him, and so they are continuing to doubt His justice and doubt His love. And the irony here is that these people are blind and self-deceived. They accuse the proud. They point the finger at the proud, but they themselves have become proud, thinking higher of themselves than they ought. They think that they're walking in obedience, but God has showed them how they're not walking in obedience to him at all. And so they're proud. They're puffed up, blind to their own shortcomings. They're unable to see the ridiculousness of their words. It's, if it wasn't so sad, it would be funny, these things that the people are saying to the Lord, right? 
Over and over, God has said, you've disobeyed, you've disobeyed, you've disobeyed. You're not worshiping me. You're not turning to me. He's pleading with them, return to me and I will return to you. Test me, try me, walk, me, walk with me in obedience and see if I don't bless you. And the people, instead of returning in obedience to him, just hang on to this claim of we're obeying you, God. No, all those things that you've said are not true about us. We're actually obeying you and you're not blessing us. They're blind to their own pride. And they're blinded by their own pride. This is a clear example of our fallen hearts. This is not something that, was, that is true of the Jews in Malachi's day only. This is true of each and every one of us. This is, this is um, the nature of sin. When we are confronted with our sin, we are masters of self-defense. That's what's going on here. God's confronting them with their sin and they are, they are deflecting and pushing it away and, and trying to get the, God's attention on others as much as they can. When we're confronted with our own sin, we are masters of self-defense. We justify ourselves. We cling on to whatever it is that we think makes us a good person. And we hang on to that. That's our obedience. We justify ourselves and we point out all the good things that we think that we do. We quickly point the finger at God. Why hasn't he kept his side of the deal if I've done all these good things? If I've obeyed God, or so I think, again, blinded in my pride, I can't really see that I'm not actually obeying God, but I think that I am. And so why doesn't God bless me? God, there's something wrong with you. We point around at others whom we deem to be beneath us. This is what we do in our pride. When, when confronted with our sin, when we can see our, when we're, um, the light is shone on us and we could see our own sin, instead we quickly say, yeah, but they're sinning more. Yeah, but they don't do the good things that I do. Yeah, but they're really proud. God, don't you notice them? We point the finger at God. We point the finger at others around us. We accuse God of favoring other people, excusing them, letting them get away with their sin, allowing them to tempt him and go free. In doing these things, we deceive ourselves. We puff ourselves up with pride, and then we covet the success of others. You see this, um, kids, you, you experience this and do this with your siblings. When you're confronted with your own sin, when you're confronted with the way that you spoke against your brother or your sister... If you're faithful, if you're walking faithfully with God, your response is, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, thank you for that correction. Please forgive me. And if you're not, you are also a master of self-defense. You have these great jujitsu moves that you use to, to flip the argument onto the other person, onto your brother or sister. Mom comes and says, I heard how you were speaking to your brother or sister. That was unkind. Yeah, but they were really unkind. It's really easy for us to see that with our children. But parents, adults, we do exactly the same thing. God says, you've disobeyed me. Um, another really clear example of this, I think, is in families, in marriages. And husbands particularly are guilty of this. Right? There's a sin that you've been confronted with, whether it's your own personal sin or it's a sin in your family. And the, and the first fleshly reaction, this worldly reaction is to say, yeah, but God, this wife that you gave me, right? I'm blaming God because he gave me this wife who's provoking me. And actually it's her fault anyways because of that provocation. God, these children that you gave me, God, it's all your fault that there's all these problems in my home. When confronted with our own sin, we are masters of self-defense. We don't want to take responsibility for our sin. We don't want to take responsibility for those that God has placed under us. We're as guilty as the people that Malachi is speaking about. We have stout words against God. And this is nothing new. This, is, this goes back to the Garden of Eden. Eve is deceived she offers the fruit to Adam. Adam 
follows his wife into her sin instead of obeying God and testing God to see if he would be a good father. He follows his wife into sin. God shows up, convicts him of his sin, and his initial reaction is, stay away, God. This woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. What an idiot God to give me that kind of a woman. God turns to Eve and she says, well, the serpent deceived me, which was true. But the serpent didn't eat the fruit, Eve. And by the way, I'm not talking to the serpent. I'm talking to you. God confronts each of us particularly. He confronts each of us with our own sin with the, or the own things that we are responsible for. And when we respond in faith, trusting that God is a good father, we turn to him in fear and we repent. We return to him. But when we're not trusting him, then we hang on to these minuscule good deeds that we think we've done to justify ourselves and we point the finger at anything else Anywhere else we think God's attention would stick for a moment so I can go back into the dark. And so we do all of this. And this is, I think, so we've accused God, we accuse others, we deflect, we distract. And then we come back around full circle and accuse God of not being fair. God, you're not treating me fairly with this situation, with this family, with these relationships, with these brothers and sisters. And I think what's helpful in this passage is um, we have that response from the people. And God is silent to them. Over and over, when they've given their, their impertinent responses, he has, he's responded and shown them no, here, this is what I mean. This is, these are the ways in which you have disobeyed. This time, he doesn't. There's, there's no further response. There's no further discussion. You're not going to listen? Okay. Verse, from going from verse 15 to verse 16, there's this silence. On the other hand, Malachi tells us of another group of people, those that feared the Lord. Several times the Lord has accused the people of not fearing him throughout the um, book of Malachi. And to fear the Lord mean, means, among other things, to believe him, to revere him, to honor him, and to obey him. A couple examples of this would be um, clear examples in Exodus chapter 1. You have Pharaoh who is, has ordered that all of the male Hebrew children, when they're born, should be thrown into the river and killed. And the Hebrew midwives are charged with doing this, and they go about and disobey Pharaoh, refuse to kill the infants. And God says that they did this because they feared God. They honored him above Pharaoh. They obeyed him above Pharaoh and because of this, God blesses them. Fearing God means walking in his ways, obeying him, honoring him. Job is another example of this. At the very beginning of Job, we're told that Job was a man who feared God. He was righteous because he feared God. He honored him. He obeyed him. He walked in his ways. And so Malachi says, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. They're talking to one another, presumably about what God has said, about these rebukes that God has brought against the people. They're perhaps confessing their sins to one another because many of the sins that God has pointed out are sins not just against God, but they have effects in relationship, in temporal relationships as well. So they're confessing their sins to one another. They're discussing the things that God has said. And overall, they're doing so in fear of God turning to him. These people heard God's rebukes and took them to heart. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 2, God says to the priests, he warns them, if you do not hear my words and take them to heart, then I will curse you. Indeed, I have already cursed you. 
But now we have these people that are turning to him in fear and taking his words to heart. And in turn, then, the Lord gives heed to them. When they turn in repentance, they're fearing God. He gives heed to them. And he hears them. Interestingly, again, you have this this contrast. that The people who are saying, um, what profit is it to serve God? What profit is it to obey God? God, you're being unjust. And God dismisses them with silence. And then the people that fear the Lord, they spoke to one another and God hears them. His ears are open to their cry. When God's people cry out to him in repentance, he always hears them. And he always forgives them. Psalm 32 tells us this, David says, when I, when I confessed my sins, you heard me, and my sins were forgiven. 1 John 1 tells us that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He's faithful to his promises, and he's just because he already paid for those, those sins were already paid for by Christ, and so he can do nothing but forgive you. As a believing Christian, when you confess your sins to God, God cannot not forgive you. To do so would be breaking his own word. When God's people cry out to him in repentance, he always hears them and he always forgives them. And this is a stark reversal of the beginning of the prophecy, that this response from the people, that they're speaking to one another and they're turning to God in fear, honoring him. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. This is God's, one of God's, the second uh, accusation that God brings against the people. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name. The people despised him. They weren't bringing him honor. They weren't bringing him reverence as a master and a father, as God they were despising him. But here we have people turning to him. They're t- speaking to one another. They're taking his words to heart. And so he hears them and heeds them. The people give the Lord the honor and the glory that is due his name and he takes notice of it. He takes notice of it, we're told, in some sort of a, what's called a book of remembrance. Um, likely, I think, that, uh, and other commentators point out that this book of rem- remembrance is an illusion to the records that ancient kings would keep, particularly of deeds that were done in faithfulness to the king. Think of the story of Esther. At the beginning of the story of Esther, there's a plot to take down the king by two of his servants. And Mordecai, the Jew, hears, overhears this plot and uncovers it and saves the king's life. And, and Mordecai's good deed, his, his deed done in faithfulness to the king, is recorded in the records and kept. And then later... The king brings out the record and reads it and and thinks, oh, I need to reward Mordecai. That's the kind of thing I think that's going on, that that Malachi is alluding to. This book of remembrance, these, these deeds of faithfulness, God notices. These deeds of repentance, of turning to him, God notices and he records. So there's a book of remembrance that's written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. Because they turn to him in fear, honoring his name, the Lord promises then in verse uh, 17 that they shall be his special treasure. This is an important word here, important phrase. It's the same thing that God said about the people in Exodus uh, when God brings them out of Egypt to Sinai and is establishing his covenant with them, making Israel his own special people. He He calls them his special treasure. So here God is saying, you shall be mine again. You've walked away from me, you've turned away from me, but return to me and I will make you my special treasure. And it's the same idea, same phrases that are used then by Peter when he's talking to the church. And he says to the church that you are a holy priesthood, a special nation, God's special treasure. So I think that's what Malachi is referring to here. He says, the the Lord says, they shall be mine on the day that I make them my jewels or my special treasure. When does that day happen? Ultimately, it happens in, in the final day of judgment, the final resurrection, when we're brought 
before the Father in Christ and offered to him as a perfect bride. But it also happens, I think, when God establishes his church. When Christ finally comes, God says to his church, his new founded church, that you are his special treasure. In that day that I make them my special treasure, they shall be mine. So Malachi here is pointing ahead to the coming of the Messiah. When that day, when that day comes, when God establishes his church in Christ, those who believe in God now in Malachi's day, they also will be part of that special treasure. They are honoring him as faithful sons, and so he will have compassion on them as a faithful father. He says, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Now there's a, a, um, another wonderful illusion here. God will spare these people on that day that he makes them his special treasure. And the means by which he spares them will be by not sparing his own son. God says to them, I will spare you like a father spares his own son. And I'm going to spare you and make you my special treasure by not sparing my own son for your sakes. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? These things being God's plan for us. God's, God's plan of predestinating and calling his people, justifying them. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is the one doing these things, then what can stand in our way? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God will spare those that turn in fear to him, not because of their fear of him, not because of their repentance, but because of Christ. Because of Christ's perfect obedience. This is, this is good news. This is the good news of the gospel. God calls on his people to be holy because he is holy, to walk in obedience with him. But the fact of the matter is you can't. Even your, your best, greatest obedience falls short of what God requires of you. But for those who fear the Lord, he hears their cry. He forgives them, but he forgives them not because of the good effort that they put into it. You don't, God doesn't forgive you because you gave it the good college try. God forgives you because Jesus obeyed perfectly. He obeyed perfectly. And that, perfect, that perfection, that righteousness is given to you in Christ. When you are baptized in Christ, when you place your faith in Christ, then all of his obedience, all of his righteousness is given to you. And, and that means, and that means there is no sin. There is no sin so great that Jesus' righteousness doesn't overwhelm it. And there's no sin so small that Jesus' righteousness passes over it and misses it. Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' obedience, his perfection, it's, it's all given to you freely. And you don't deserve a drop of it. This is the mercy and the grace of Christ. And then it's because of that. It's understanding that. It's embracing that. That's the fear of the Lord. Embracing the grace of God is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of knowledge. That's fearing God. And it's then fearing God that you can walk in obedience. Those sins that... that um, as, as Hebrews, it tells us in Hebrews, those sins that entangle you, that, that you're easily ensnared by, that you continue to fall back into, in Christ, they have no power over you. 
in Christ because his obedience has been applied to you and because you embrace that grace and you turn in repentance to God, the, the chains of those sins are broken. And you can, in Christ, walk in obedience, knowing the pleasure of God in you. Not because of those good things, but because of Christ and because of you walking in Christ and following after him. God tells the Jews in Malachi's day that he will spare those that fear him. Like a father spares his own son. And he does this because he, he won't spare his own son who goes to the cross bearing all of their sins, bearing all of your sins. And Paul says that this is proof. This is proof of God's generosity to his people, of his grace to his people, of his care for his people, of his love for his people and his, his promise to preserve them. If God is for us, who can stand against us? God, another thing that this passage demonstrates to us is that God is keenly aware of our circumstances. God is keenly aware of what we are doing, of our obedience in the midst of the circumstances that he has given to us. Malachi indicates with this, this idea of the book of remembrance that God keeps a record of your obedience in the circumstances that he has given to you. He does this not because you are justified by that obedience, but rather because he delights to tell the faithful servant, well done. In the final day, God delights to tell his faithful servants, well done. Enter into the joy of your Lord. God is watching. He's watching to see those that he loves, to whom he has given the gift of salvation. He's watching to see how you walk with him. Not because he's, a, he's a, a, a taskmaster looking over your shoulder, getting ready to slam you down when you disobey. But rather, he's keeping a record because he wants, he is so excited to overwhelm you with blessings as you come into his presence. Again, this is obedience. This is a reward that comes not, be, not, um, not because we did good things, but because of this God that we serve. He is anticipating, calling you to himself to say to you, well done, enter into the joy of your Lord. God invites his children to test him to see if he does not overwhelm them with blessings when they obey him. He's calling on you to test him by your obedience. The unfaithful Jews in this passage perhaps dabbled in obedience, but they did not obey God with a holy fear. They did not love him with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They, yeah, maybe they obeyed a little bit, but they didn't love God. They didn't fear him. They didn't turn to him. And because of this, they did not obey him. So their obedience to God was short-lived. They gave up because they didn't see the fruit of their obedience. God, you're not answering. You, God, you say to test me and I'm testing you by, by this obedience. And, and you're not rewarding me. I'm done with it. One, one uh, example of this that I've I've seen a lot is with regards to Bible reading. I'll encourage people to be in the word daily. Read their Bibles because it's food for you. And, and often it's in the context of dealing with a particular struggle. Be in the word. Rest in God's word. It's food for you. It's nourishment for you. And God will deal with you by being in his word. And, and so they'll, they'll come back a month later or so. And how's it going? How's the Bible reading going? I gave up. It didn't really seem to help very much. Well, that's kind of like giving up eating because you don't understand how it's helping you. You're not, gonna, you're not always going to see the fruit of your obedience. Sometimes God's, God withholds that fruit for a time because he, he's going to deliver it to you in an overwhelming way later on. Sometimes you don't see it because we're dumb. We, we can't see God's blessings so much of the time. Right? We're, we're blind sheep. <laughs> we don't see God's blessings, and so we give up on obedience. We give up. It's too hard, God. I don't see the profit of it. I don't see the fruit. I'm done. I can't do it anymore. I've used this analogy before, and I, and I, think, it's, I think it's a really wonderful picture of the kind of obedience that God calls us to. 
Um, growing up, our family vacations were um, usually highlighted with water skiing. And not water skiing very often means that getting up the first time after a year of not water skiing is challenging, it's difficult. And the way that you get up, especially if you're doing one ski, if you're slalom skiing, the way that you get up after not having skied for a long time is, is leaning back and holding onto the rope and just holding on. And as soon as the boat starts to pull, the water's going over your head and feels like you're drowning. And if you want to get up, you have to hold on. You hold on. You hold on through the water, through the waves, through that pull. You don't let go. You don't let it slip out of your grip. You hold on. That's like, that's like obeying God. That's like putting your faith and trust in God. And what's amazing about that, this, there's a wonderful physics illustration. Physics is all about demonstrating God, right? It, it's the power of the boat that gets you up over the water, that puts you up on top of the water. You don't, you don't do it yourself. You just hold on, <laughs> and the boat pulls you up. That's obeying God. That's trusting in God. And obedience to God often looks like that. I think I, I want to I obey God in my own way, so I'm just going to stand up right away. And, and if you do that, you fall over and you lose the rope. But if you trust God, obeying and doing it his way, he's going to pull you through the water. You're going to feel like you're drowning. But it's also that he can pop you up and, and give you this amazing blessing. Hold on to that rope. Obey God through the difficulties. Obey God when you don't see the fruit of it. When you're down in the middle of the waves, it doesn't look like I'm water skiing. So obey God. Trust him. Hold on to that rope. Don't give up. The unfaithful Jews, they did. They gave up because they didn't see the fruit of their obedience. And the others, though, hear the promise that God says, they shall be mine. They hear God's words at the beginning of Malachi. I have loved you. And they cling to that promise. So they test God, walk in obedience. They know and they, they by faith, trust that God is going to make them his. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ? This passage then concludes saying that the unfaithful people will return and discern between the righteous and the wicked. New King James says they will return again. It's, um, it's also, you could also translate it as two different verbs. They will return or they will discern again. You could translate it as two different verbs. They will return and discern between the righteous and the wicked. I don't think the return here is likely a reference to their repentance, although I may have mentioned that in a previous sermon. As I've continued to study it, I don't think it's talking about these people repenting. But I think it is given as a contrast to verse 7, the repentance that God calls them to. In verse 7, God says, return to me and I will return to you. And the result is that the unfaithful Jews, they don't return to him. They give up on obeying God. And so then God tells them that they will return in the sense of changing their mind as they see, changing their mind about who God is judging about the justice of God. They'll see, if they don't return to God, they will see that God judges righteously. God had called the people to return to him, but they railed against him. They think that God is confused between the righteous and the wicked. But Malachi says that God's promises will play out so that they will see clearly the distinction between those who serve God and those who do not. The wicked, the unfaithful, they will see the difference. In God's timing. And this is all, this culminates then in uh, the, the beginning verse of chapter 4, which I did not read earlier, which is not part of this passage directly, but this is what's coming. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch." When God's judgment does come, those who do not fear him, those who do not turn to him in repentance, they'll see the difference between those who serve God and those who do not. God invites us to test him. And he does so with promises of blessing. 
God, in other words, God invites us to trust him by walking in the works that he has set before us. We're told in Ephesians that we've been saved by grace through faith alone, not of our works, lest anyone should boast. And yet God has set good works before you to walk in. He set before you things in which to obey him. And Malachi shows us that there are two responses to this invitation to test God by your obedience. God says, test me by your obedience. How will you respond? There's one response that says, that, that turns and accuses God of delivering not on time, or not at all, or not as much as he gave to others, and then give up. That's one way to respond to God's invitation to test him by obedience. Accuse him, blame others, compare yourselves to others, covet what others have, and accuse God of not delivering to you like he promised, and then give up on obedience. We, we want to say, um, we want to say, God, this isn't working. Obeying you, it's not working out. And if, when we say that, when we say, God, it's not working out, and so I'm giving up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do things my own way. Um, we're, we're saying that we know better than God, which is saying that you are God. When you give up on obeying God, you're challenging God for his throne. That's one response. The other response is to turn and to fear God and cling to his promises humbly obeying all that he has commanded, imitating the obedience of Jesus. Jesus is that example of obedience for us. Who walked perfectly with God, who went all the way to the cross, despising the shame and the death of the cross, looking through the cross, through his burial, to the joy that was set before him, obeying the Father all the way, despite how dark it was, despite how impossible it was despite how painful it was. He trusted in his Father. And so have you humbled yourself before the Lord? Do you fear God? Do you fear God Almighty? God is not a perfectionist. He demands his people to be holy, but he's not a perfectionist. He knows that his children are merely dust. You're merely mortal and sinners at that. And so he is tender and compassionate and slow to anger with those whose hearts are turned toward him. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Obedience to God requires faith. Hold on to that rope. Cling to those promises. Walk in obedience. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your commands, and we thank you for your promises. <coughs> Father, make us an obedient people, but first make us a believing people. Teach us to trust you as our Father, and having trusted you to walk worthy of our calling. Help us to apply these things to our lives, even today and then later this week. In Jesus' name, amen.